Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. My name is Michael, and I'm lead pastor here at Christ the King Church. And if I've not met you yet, hopefully I will get to you soon. Um, It's good to see all of you. I'm glad you're here. We're in the middle of a a book currently looking at um, the teachings of Jesus. And so we're going through the book of Luke. And in this section that we're in, we're in this teaching section of the book of Luke. And uh, today we're at the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man and Lazarus. Jesus told a lot of stories of contrast where he would tell a a contrast between two people or two types of life, that sort of thing. And with these stories of contrast, the effect is that we're supposed to ask ourselves, who would I rather be? Who do I identify with and who would I rather be? In this case, we're going to have in this story a rich man and a poor man. And this story is also a reversal of fortunes kind of story that makes a spiritual point that will become clear as we go along. But I'll tell you the the crayon version now. The spiritual point is for you to commit your life to Christ now while you still can. So you're going to hear that a lot today. And if you've not committed your life to Christ yet, today is your opportunity. And I'll explain all this to you as we go. So let's dig in. We're in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. I've pressed my button. We should be, we should be up there. Am I, am I good, Caleb? Okay. Um, so let's, we'll read through the whole parable, and then we'll work through it again a bit at a time. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple. Oh, it's that thing again. All right, how about this? I pushed the button a couple minutes ago. I thought that it was good enough. All right. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child... Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us." And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. Two notable things about this story. Number one, Luke does not introduce it as a parable, which is what he normally does. Number two, this is the only story that is considered to be a parable where one of the characters has a name. Normally he just says there was a man who and there was a woman who and so on. But in this case, the man has a name, Lazarus. And the name Lazarus, it comes from the Hebrew, Eliezer, which means God, one whom God helps. And so we have a man that God knows his name, the poor man. Jesus knows his name. Jesus sees him. So for these two reasons, a lot of people, scholars, have wondered, is this actually a parable or is Jesus reporting an event an actual event. Um, we can't say for sure. Um, and I don't, 
I don't have a strong opinion on the matter, but it does just highlight the immediacy of the way Jesus communicates. This parable stands out as having these unique features that at least give rise to the question that this might be an actual event that Jesus is telling us that happened and not merely a story. We don't know, but either way, it drives the point home. Well, let's go through the story once again. I'll start here in uh, verse 19, and we'll look at the characters. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So that's the characteristics of the rich man. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So you have a contrast between two men. You have the rich man and the poor man, and then you were supposed to be seeing who do we identify with, or who would you rather be? So in this story, who would you rather be? Does anybody want to be the poor man? Certainly not, it doesn't seem. We see the rich man, he's, he's living in this luxury, right? So he's clothed in purple. Now, purple dye was very expensive, and so nobody wore purple except for those who were extraordinarily rich. Um, so that was the most expensive kind of clothing. It was like, you know, high fashion, top-of-the-line fashion is what this guy had, very expensive clothing. Um, and he feasted sumptuously every day. So every day was a feast. Every day he had plenty of food. And he never, he never lacked for anything to eat. He ate, uh, ate like a king, and this was a daily thing. I mean, like, surely just about anybody gets to eat from time to time a nice big feast. But this guy ate, feasted like a king every day. And at his gate indicates that he lived in, he, he had some boundaries around his house. It's like a gated community. He lived in a place that was protected, and, you know, he, he was able to afford such protections, the security system that he had. So all of his needs were met, and he was able to indulge every desire. So you have the rich man's luxury compared to the poor man's misery. So Lazarus was laying at the rich man's gate. So he's there hanging out at the gate of the rich man. And he could see, he was able to look in and see the lavish feasting that the rich man was able to enjoy. And he desired to be fed by what fell from the rich man's table. And so while he laid there hungry for even a scrap of food, he was suffering and these wild street dogs. So the dogs here, don't think chihuahua or like, uh, what's the little poodle, poodle things, you know, uh, there's like a, like a combination poodle and something like cockapoo or something. Isn't that what they call it? Or, or it's not like one of these little house pets, a cute little dog that comes and licks you in the morning to say good morning. It's like, no, these are more like wild street dogs. They didn't really have dogs as pets the way we do now. Um, so these are like wild street dogs. And uh, whenever I lived in, my wife and I did missions work in Argentina, and that's the thing. You know? uh, there are these just wild street dogs that just roam around scavenging, and they're, these were not pets. But they did show him mercy in the sense that being... They, like, just like any dog would lick itself or to, to soothe and comfort and to heal its wounds. It was like, it was like the dogs were showing him mercy that the rich man did not show this man. So the rich man, he didn't have any regard for the poor man. Didn't notice him, didn't care about him. This guy is at his gate in, in eyesight of where he's living, suffering and starving just outside of his door, not offering any help. So the question once again, who would we rather be? Or whose circumstances would we rather have? Whose life is better? And you have this rich guy. There's not a care in the world. He doesn't need money or food or clothing. All of his needs are met. Whereas you have the, the poor guy who doesn't have a nickel to his name. So obviously we would rather have the circumstances of the rich guy. Of course we think, well, I would be more uh, magnanimous and generous with my wealth if I were the rich guy. But I would rather have his circumstances. But we don't, want to be in, we don't want to be the poor guy. And Jesus describes the poor man with such detail that makes us recoil. I mean, it's, it's gross. It's imagine this man who's just who's laying there starving and he's got dogs licking his sores. It's a gross picture and we would recoil at that. So Jesus is, is painting this very graphically. And it's, it's setting us up for this contrast of the great reversal that will happen. 
And Jesus prepares us for the great reversal that takes place when they both die. And what we're about to see in the great reversal is that the rich man was actually spiritually poor. And that was evidenced by his lack of regard for the poor man. The Bible warns in a number of places that money is one of the biggest threats, biggest dangers to our soul. And it deadens us spiritually. And we'll talk about that as we go along here. But the more easy your life is, the more comfortable your life is, the more, uh, the more you don't really have anything that's troubling you, then it just becomes easy to disregard your spiritual need, to just not pay it any mind, to not, because you're, there isn't anything triggering you. Is my screen off of here again? Okay. Well, if it doesn't come back, then I can just continue. Thanks, Caleb. But there, there, it, it, it deadens us spiritually if we don't, if we don't pay heed. If we're, if we're not physically suffering in some way, then it's just easy to think that, well, I'm good physically, I'm good spiritually, I'm good emotionally, everything is good. And so the more easy your life is, the easier it is to disregard the needs of your soul. So if we're comfortably middle class, as most Americans uh, tend to be, that can make you spiritually complacent to the point to where God and the needs of your soul become an afterthought, if you even think about it at all. But it's different with the poor man, wasn't it? We see with the poor man, I mean, his physical needs were so urgent and present and physical, and he could feel it. He was suffering so much that, that it, it creates a crisis in the entire person where he knew he needed God because nobody on earth is coming to his aid. He was in touch with his desperation, and that indicates that there's, there's some connection between his physical desperation and his spiritual desperation. He knew the needs of his soul. He knew he had to depend on God for everything. And so he was spiritually rich, even though he was physically poor. And being spiritually rich is one who knows how to depend on God. The more desperate you are spiritually... And the more that that desperation and need for God manifests itself in your life, the more spiritually wealthy you are because you know that you're going to the source, the only place that can meet the need. Well, let's keep going. Verse 22, are we back? Okay. The poor man died and was carried by the angels. So notice this. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Both men died. And their experience of eternity was the culmination of their earthly priorities. The poor man died, and there's no mention of a funeral. No mention of a burial. There's no mention of mourning or anything like that. He just died and his soul was carried by angels to Abraham's side. That's a, it's a place in the afterlife um, that we'll get to that in a moment. The rich man also died, but we see here he was, he was buried. So, of course, as a rich man, he's going, to, um, he was, he's going to be mourned by people. He's going to receive the ceremony of, of uh, a funeral. But afterwards, he found himself in Hades in torment, whereas the poor man was at Abraham's side. And being in Hades, he's able to see Lazarus. So let's, let me just uh, pause here and explain this for a second. In the ancient way of thinking, um, whenever people died, everyone went to Sheol. That's the Old Testament word. Uh, New Testament word is Hades, but it's not all, it doesn't always refer to hell, a place of torment. It just refers to a place where dead people go. It is the grave. But in this, in this afterlife, in this realm of the dead, it is compartmentalized to where there are some who are, they receive punishments for their life. Others receive rewards for their life. And this was a, this was a common belief across many different ancient Near Eastern religions, and we see this reflected in Scripture as well. So this was a, a true thing. This was a reality. There is a realm of the dead, and there is, an, there is a final place 
which is at the, at the last judgment whenever Christ returns and we, we reach an eternal state. But until such time, here we see this teaching about this being in this realm of the dead. And so being in this realm of the dead where there are multiple compartments, some are comforted for their, uh, you know, for their life and others are tormented. And so both the poor man and the rich man are in this realm of the dead, which is partitioned off for different kinds of people. We see the rich man is tormented and the poor man is comforted. And according to what Jesus says here, the, the rich man can see the poor man. You see that here? So we have the rich man here. He died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and at Lazarus' side. Now, you might think, well, if this is a parable, then Jesus is speaking metaphorically, so, but that's not a real thing. Well, I, I think that it is a real thing because of something Jesus says three chapters prior in Luke chapter 13. So Luke chapter 13, Jesus is, is giving a similar teaching about uh, strive to enter through the narrow way. And Jesus says this, but he will say, meaning the, 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 um, the Lord, uh, God will say this. I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, meaning a place of torment, he's described it as there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Now, in that teaching, Jesus was not teaching a story or some kind of a parable. He was teaching about eternal realities and exhorting people, enter through the narrow gate, as he said in that chapter. But he says in this chapter, when he's describing that reality, that those that are, those that are cast out, that are on the outside, they're able to see somehow and perceive this eternal reality for those that are being comforted. They're able to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets. They're able to recognize and know that's who they are, but, but be aware that they're, they're cast out of it. Now, this is, a, this is a vivid story, right? I mean, it paints this very disturbing, unsettling picture of the afterlife. And in this story, it causes us to reflect on life after death and to consider what eternity will be like. And so what Jesus is doing is he's describing the eternal state, and Jesus knows it because he is God. He is the creator. He is the God over all. And so this is not something that Jesus was unfamiliar with. He's not guessing. Jesus knows it. He's familiar with it. And so he knows the eternal state. He knows the afterlife, the realm of the dead. And he is warning people, don't go there. Don't live your life in such a way that that's where you will be. He's, he's offering them a way of escape, a way out. And so the warning then is to take heed of your life. Don't be like the rich man. The rich man who had everything he wanted in this life, but was so, uh, it, it was so careless about the state of his soul that he, he disregarded all of his spiritual needs. And so some people will be tormented like the rich man. Some people will be comforted like Lazarus. And it all depends on the state of their soul. So those who pursued worldly pleasures with money and comfort and an easy life and were, were negligent to the state of their souls, those are the ones that will be shut out in the last day. They're shut out of God's kingdom. But those who were like Lazarus, who knew that they were needy, who knew that they were desperately dependent upon God, and they have hearts of faith and love for God, those people will be welcomed into God's kingdom, and they will be comforted in his presence. And that's the point of the story. Your experience of eternity will be the culmination of all of your earthly priorities. It reflects your faith. It reflects what is your life about. So Jesus' admonition here is take heed of your life now. Let your earthly life produce eternal rewards that last forever through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the way that you live in this life matters for the next one. And everyone who heard this story, including all of us here today, we have a choice. 
Now, before I keep going, I just want to make this point. This is not a cosmic karma story. It's, it would be easy to read it that way. You may go, oh, okay, we got the rich guy who went to hell because he was just rich. And you have the poor guy who went to heaven just because he was poor. And so in the afterlife, they just, they just had a reversal of roles merely on the basis of their financial status in this life. That is not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching to, in the context of the Jewish faith. So both the rich man and Lazarus knew who Abraham was. They were both part of the Jewish community. But within the Jewish community, there were some who were of faith and who believed in God and who followed, followed God and were repentant. And there were those who were part of the Jewish community, but they did not believe. And they were unbelieving Israel. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. But the rich man's actions, which I'm going to spend a good bit of time developing this as we go along, the rich man's actions demonstrate and reveal a hard, unbelieving heart. That's his problem. And it is evidenced by the way he treated Lazarus. So in this earthly life, the rich man ignored Lazarus' need while he was sitting right outside his front door, sitting at his gate, starving, in need of medical attention, suffering, hungry. And he, he could care less about him. He was inside feasting himself, gorging himself, and Lazarus would have given anything just for a bite that fell from the rich man's table onto the floor. The rich man had no regard for him. That's a hard, unbelieving heart. That's an unmerciful heart that does not reflect the character of God that would be produced in us by faith. That's how he treated Lazarus. And that attitude, that, that contempt for Lazarus, continued even in the afterlife. It continued in when he was in Hades. And when we get to that conversation, you'll see what I'm talking about. But, but his... His sense of entertainment and comfort and an ease that he enjoyed in this life blinded him to the fact that there were real spiritual needs that he was neglecting to address. He was spiritually dead. He had a good job. He made good money. He was comfortably middle class. He had plenty to spare. He could have easily fed Lazarus with his table scraps, with the, with the stuff that they threw out with the garbage. But he didn't. He didn't care. He didn't help Lazarus, and that disregard for his brother in the covenant community of Israel, that's a big deal. Because in in, in this covenant community, there is this repeated emphasis, refrain throughout the Old Testament, hey, pay attention, care for the poor among you. Don't let your brother, your brother in the Lord, this this member of our covenant community, don't let people suffer and, and, and and, and die and be, go hungry like this, care for one another, because that's what our covenant God requires of us. The rich man did not care about that. He had a hard, unbelieving heart. He was disregarding of all the things that God commanded them to do. And so his disregard for his brother and obvious need indicated the true condition of his heart and of his soul. Proverbs 19, verse 17 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So for both the poor man and the rich man, Jesus used their earthly circumstances to illustrate the condition of their souls. Their earthly circumstances was a bit of a proxy, a metaphor for the condition of their souls. The rich man had contempt. He was self-sufficient, self-righteous, did not need God, was not dependent on God. And that was, you see that in his lifestyle, and then it came to fruition in eternity. And then, by contrast, the poor man was desperate and needy. And he, he had nothing to offer, nothing to give. And that manifest in his, in his heart as a heart of faith, as was evidenced by the fact that he was welcomed into eternity, into God's presence by the angels and Abraham himself. So Jesus told this story, and the Holy Spirit preserved it in Scripture for our benefit to press home the, the point to repent of our sins, trust Jesus while we still can, because we don't live forever. We will all meet the fate that the rich man and Lazarus did. We will all die someday. 
And in that time, we will have our, we will we'll have to meet our maker and answer for our lives. Now, we have the benefit of knowing how the story plays out. We've already read it, right? So we already know how the story plays out. We know that the rest of the gospel story, that Jesus himself was tormented to save us from this fate. Jesus endured suffering. He endured torment to save us from having to go through the same fate. Jesus purchased our salvation. The Holy Spirit has applied it to our hearts through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. And even though Jesus did this for us and purchased salvation for us, worldly priorities are not so easily forsaken. Because what Jesus did for us, we access it by faith. We have to access it through belief in what we read and trusting that it's true. Or by faith in what we hear and trusting that it is true and that this is a true and accurate reflection of what is real, what is eternity, what God is like. Or as our worldly stuff, it's, we can touch it, see it, and we can enjoy it. And so those things are not so easily forsaken. So what remains in this story is a cautionary tale of the rich man's heart where there's a multiplication of warnings that are meant to be applied by, by us, the hearers and the readers, where this rich man's heart is going to be exposed. Jesus is going to peel him like an onion. He's going to show us what's really there. So let's keep going. Verse 24. All right. There's three requests. Here's the first one. The rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child. So Abraham recognizes him as a, as a member of this covenant community, but he is an unfaithful covenant member. So Abraham looks at him and says, child. Abraham knows him. Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. So the rich man mentions Lazarus by name. That's interesting. He knew the guy out of by his gate, didn't he? He knew who he was. He recognized him. He knows his name in, in, uh, when he's in, in torment. But he didn't really pay him any regard before that. He knew him and did nothing. But he's still treating Lazarus like a lesser person. He's saying, hey, Abraham, send your little errand boy there to, uh, to come and, and give me something to drink because I'm in anguish in this flame. Hey, errand boy, come over here. You know, get, bring, me some, bring me something to drink. He's still treating Lazarus like a servant. And he's, he just has, he has contempt for this man. He, help, help me, he's saying, even though I never helped him. But Abraham, um, Abraham recognized his spiritual needs. Spiritually, this rich man was not faithful to God because he lacked mercy. That was evidence of his faithlessness to God. Um, keep reading. Verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So this great chasm is permanent. The great chasm, it reflects the eternal state of human souls and that the eternal state of human souls is permanent and irreversible. There isn't any way across. He says, none may go from here to there and none may come from there back over here. It can't happen. It's impossible. And this is an important point that we need to recognize here because that great chasm does not only exist in the eternal realm, that great chasm exists now in the earthly realm. The difference is that in the earthly realm, Jesus has made a way across. And we can make our way across through faith in Christ. 
so that it is not this impenetrable chasm that we can't get from here to there. We can get from here to there. We can't get from here to there because God has made a way. That's why Jesus came. That's the whole point of of Christ's ministry was to come to make a way to rescue people from there to here, to bring us from a place of torment into a place of comfort. So he's telling this story to people who are still alive and who still had an opportunity to follow Jesus across that chasm. So listen, Jesus does not tell this story of rich man and Lazarus to dead people. It's too late for them. It's too late for Lazarus, or it's too late for the rich man. Lazarus wouldn't, he's already where he wants to be. It's too late for them. But Jesus was telling this story to living people. So Jesus told this story about the eternal state of the dead to people who were still alive so that they could change course and cross the chasm through faith. That's what he was trying to accomplish. There is indeed a great chasm that exists between sinful humans and an eternally perfectly holy God. And Jesus came to make a way across that chasm. In his death, he robbed death of its power over human souls. And he freed his people from the power of death. And in his resurrection, Jesus paved the way to eternal life with God where we are like Lazarus. We are comforted. And we are blessed in the presence of our Father and with all the saints. So the cross of Jesus Christ is actually a bridge. It is a way across. A bridge that we can cross by faith and be brought safely into the presence of God. And the time to cross that chasm is now while you have the opportunity. It's not later. It's not whenever you're dead. When you're dead, it's too late. There's nothing you can do then. It is fixed. It is immovable. It is is permanent. You can't do anything then. And so Jesus is appealing to us, we do it now. We repent now. We follow Jesus now while we have the opportunity to do so. Listen to what Hebrews 9.27 says. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So every time a person hears the gospel, as you are hearing it here today, and they don't respond to that opportunity... They harden their hearts further against God. And they make it even more difficult to repent in the future. So it's not something that's like, well, I'll, I'll repent and I'll change my life when I'm older. <laughs> after I've had my fun for a while. I mean, of course, Jesus saves people all the time. Uh, at any age. So it, but don't put the grace of God to the test. Because what happens is we accumulate a pattern of living and a pattern of thinking and a pattern of believing that sets itself in stone around our heart to where we're so hardened that whenever that time comes that we might have planned on, it doesn't happen because we have so conditioned ourselves in unbelief that we never do it. There's a reason why little children are more receptive to the gospel. It's because they haven't haven't set in their ways yet a pattern of unbelief and hard-heartedness. So the time to repent of sin and believe the gospel and receive forgiveness and eternal life in Christ is now, not later. Let's keep going. That was the first request. The second request. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. Send him. He's still the errand boy. Send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said... They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Abraham points out something, and he he sees the assumption that is within this rich man's heart. And the assumption is that my brothers haven't been warned yet, just as I wasn't warned before I came here. So he wants Lazarus to go and warn his brothers about this place, implying that they don't know about it. And if they don't know about it, then God didn't do enough to tell them about it. This is God's fault. God, why didn't you warn somebody before? Why didn't you warn me before? Why didn't you tell me before? Why don't you warn them? You got to send somebody. Send somebody now. Send Lazarus. Send anybody. Go warn them so they don't come here too. And Abraham says, I already did. God already did. They've had... They've had Abraham, or they've had Moses and the prophets. They've had these, the words of Scripture. They've had what is written down. They, they could have repented then, but they didn't. 
And so Abraham's response is that they've had all the warning that they need all along because God has already spoken through Moses and the prophets. God was merciful and gracious to do so. Have you read Moses and the prophets? It's a story of God's incredible grace to save his people and bring them out. Through, though they're continually rebellious and hard-hearted, they, they, God is merciful to them and patient. And he spoke to his people. He gave them a law, tell them how to live, instruction through the prophets. So God was not negligent in speaking to them. They were negligent in listening to him, just like the rich man. So Abraham is essentially saying, don't blame God for your lack of faith. Don't blame God for your brother's lack of faith. Your problem is not that you lack words or information. Your problem is that you have a hard heart and you're not listening. So Abraham's response indicates that the rich man had ignored the warnings of Scripture during his life. Abraham was part of the people of God, the people of Israel, the covenant community. He would have, he would have had access. If he would have taken heed to the condition of his soul, he would have had access. So he wasn't ignorant. He was negligent. He did not fear God. He did not give consideration to the state of his soul. He thought everything will be just fine, just like his earthly life is just fine. And this is my fear for so many people. They have no fear of God. They don't give any consideration to the state of their souls. Some people even mock God. They make fun of God's word. They make light. I mean, how often is it to hear somebody mocking God, mocking Christ, making fun of the Christian faith? Make light of anything that might cause them to be sober-minded. And just like the rich man, they're too busy trying to enjoy life and they're unwilling to consider the state of their souls. So imagine this, imagine that uh, your close friend of yours is getting married and you're invited to the wedding. So you go to the wedding and here at this wedding, you're at the reception now, everybody's having a great time. You're, you're celebrating and you're feasting and dancing, everybody's having fun. But then suddenly a man walks in and he interrupts the party. So the, like, the lights come on, the DJ stops the music and everybody turns and they're like, what, what? <laughs> What's going on? And this, this dude is standing there. People, everybody stops and looks at him. They're all quiet. And this man says, repent and believe the gospel. <laughs> Jesus Christ is coming. And it is appointed for man to die once and after that face judgment. And I'm here to tell everyone, repent and believe in the gospel while there's still time. How do you think everyone will respond? I confess to you, if, if, if that happened to me as I played out this scenario in my head, I'd be like, come on, dude, it's a party, bro. Like, can you not like, do this some other time? We're having a good time here. It's easy to just think, like, to, to think of that sort of message and to treat it with mockery and contempt and be like, dude, you're way out of line, man. This is so inappropriate for you to do this here during a wedding. And we respond with mockery and contempt because nobody wants to talk about eternity and heaven and hell and these heavy topics when you're trying to party. And of course, you would say there, there may be a better time and place to do that. But the point being is just that whenever your life is characterized by a party every day, essentially, he feasted sumptuously every day. He wore the finest clothes. He, he, he had a sweet ride. He had all the servants and he had a beautiful, opulent house. And it was a feast every day, drinking, partying, dancing, whatever it was that he was doing every day. And so there was never the opportunity for anybody to interrupt and to warn him about the state of his soul because he was too self-absorbed, self-indulgent, and entertaining himself, having a good time. That's a person who's trying to numb the pain, numb the sober-minded realities of life because they don't want to face them because they're too scary. You may be like the rich man. Not that you're rich, but that you are filling your life with lots of distractions and entertainment, which is like a sedative for your soul that keeps you from being awakened to the true reality of your condition. 
can numb your senses to your spiritual need. Third request. Still good. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What is the rich man assuming? He's assuming that the brothers will repent if they receive a message from beyond the grave, which would be a miracle. And Abraham's response, I mean, as Christians, we kind of see where it's headed, don't we? We see this coming. It's like his response anticipates the resurrection of Jesus himself and also people's responses to the gospel. And his response is, if somebody will not hear God's word, then no amount of miracles is going to change his mind. If they're hard-hearted, they're hard-hearted. They're not going to respond. And so if you are waiting for proof for God to do something extraordinary and miraculous before you'll repent and believe the gospel, just hear, hear this as a, from a friend, just a direct word, that's a stall tactic. Because it's not, it's not as though you're lacking for miraculous signs. I mean, proof does not create faith. A, heart, a soft heart, repentance creates faith. That's, that's the, the, the fruit of faith. Proof does not create faith. I mean, think about how many people, if, you, if you're familiar with the stories in the Bible, and if not, you can read them, you'll see this pattern where Jesus will do some miraculous thing and people still didn't believe him. But it's, it's because proof is not enough to overcome a hard heart. The miracle that is needed is the miracle of regenerating a hard heart so that the person can turn to Christ in belief. So if you have been wrestling with Christianity or if you've been on the fence about giving your life to Christ because you're waiting for something to come along to prove to you that it's true, you're never going to get there. That's not how it works. Demanding proof before you believe is just a sophisticated form of unbelief. And no amount of proof will convince you. I'm certain of this. Proof does not create faith. If you're demanding proof, then you're putting yourself in the judge's seat. It's like telling God, I see what you've done. Not quite there yet. Not impressed. But maybe if you could do a little more, uh, then I'll feel better. You know, I, I went through a crisis of faith when I was in college. I almost walked away from the Christian faith because I had intellectual doubts. I had problems with miracles, and I, and I remember uh, the summer I met my wife, 1997. Don't do the math on that. Um, summer of 1997, we were on a summer project, uh, like a missionary trip, where we were sharing our faith. And I remember feeling like I am supposed to go out there on the beach and approach people and tell them about a God I'm not sure I believe in and about a Jesus I'm not sure is the Savior, if he's even real at all. And I remember, it's like I didn't want to, I wanted to believe. And I remember like praying, walking out on the beach at night, you know, just being awed by the ocean and seeing the, the waves come in, seeing this powerful display of God's creation. And thinking, crying out to God, like, God, will you just give me something? Give me something, anything. Just prove to me, and I'm, and I'm yours. I'm in. I'm all in. But give me something. There was a girl on that trip who um, was ill, and she had, she had uh, we'd been praying for her that God would heal her. She had had, a, you know, like a long-term illness. And I remember just being angry with God, thinking, God, you're not going to heal her. I know it. You're not going to do it. How many times we prayed for healing and you don't come through, God? And I was so frustrated. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm just done with this. And it was, uh, I was reading a book because we had this, this thing we do every week where you just have a, a couple hours in the evening to get away by yourself. And it was scheduled and everybody would go off. I went to a, was it Barnes and Noble? Is that where we went, Laura? I went to a Barnes and Noble coffee shop. Um, there's still a few around. But I would go there and I'd sit in there and drink coffee and I would 
I would read, and I was reading a book, and I just remember being struck by an insight that, that, that was the turning point in my faith. And the turning point was just that if God were to prove himself with miracles, then it would not be faith, but coercion. And I'm like, and Jesus is not going to coerce people to believe. He's not going to force it. It's like he wants to entice it. He wants to draw it out. He wants us to believe, freely believe. Now I'm a Calvinist, so don't worry about your soteriology there. I'm not, I'm not spouting heresy here, but I'm just saying like, Jesus is not going to coerce faith by, by performing magic tricks and pulling off great feats of human strength or by flying in the air like Superman or doing, you know, 50 twirls in the air. Even raised, being raised from the dead, some of his own followers, like Thomas, doubted him. Miracles do not overcome a hard heart. Proof does not produce faith. Faith comes from softening our heart, humbling ourselves and say, God, I'm desperate. I'm needy. I've got nothing to offer, nothing to give. I need you to speak. I need you to show yourself to me. I need you to forgive me, help me. Like the, the one story in the book of Mark where he said, I believe, help my unbelief. That's the way we come to Jesus. Jesus is a spiritual surgeon. And he knows our disease and he knows what it will take to cure us. But if we're waiting for a miracle or waiting for some feat, it's like we're the customer and God is the salesman. We're telling him, you're doing good so far, but you, you, need, to get, you, need, to, you need to explain the product one more time to close the deal. And it's putting us on the judge's seat and, and standing over God's word and standing over the gospel saying like, ah, I'm not quite there yet. And so the message to the rich man is that your problem is not a lack of proof. Your problem is a hard heart. The only cure for a hard heart is to do what every Christian that has ever existed has done. We humble ourselves. We say, God, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I'm sorry, I was wrong. I need you to forgive me. Confess your sins to God. Lord, forgive me. Ask his forgiveness. And trust by faith that Jesus will indeed forgive you. And in fact, he showers his grace on you. And he changes your life. And that, in fact, is the proof. But the proof comes after the faith, not before. And the proof that your faith is real is not some new miracle he performs, but the miracle he produces in your life, which is change. You see this in the New Testament. What is the proof of God? It is the lives of those who have been changed by the power of the gospel and there are some amazing stories sitting in this room right now where you were headed 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction. You hated God. You hated everything about God. You hated the Bible. You hated Christians. You were angry, bitter, hard-hearted, and Jesus just awakened you out of nowhere. And you're like, I, I believe this stuff that I thought was nuts yesterday. And the lights come on, and you turn around, and it's a radical change. That is the miracle, and that is the proof. It is the lives that are changed. This rich man, he never had that experience because his life never changed. But if you trust Jesus and believe with your whole heart and follow Christ, he will show you your faith is well-placed. So for those of us in this room who are Christians, we can attest that our faith was well-placed. Because we once were lost, what are we now? We once was blind, but what are we now? We see. Because God has done the miracle. He has opened the blind eyes. He has raised the dead spiritually. And we are living testimonies of the power of God and the power of the gospel. Does that mean we're perfect? Of course not. There are some legitimate Christians in here that someday through the course of our life we're going to do some really dumb things that you'll probably stop and wonder... (laughs) Dude, a Christian or not, because we're not perfect and we're all in process, but we are changed and we are all being changed and being transformed little by little into the image of Christ. That's what happens in us. So we're not perfect, we're forgiven, and we have the hope of eternal life in us just like Lazarus. So just to put a bow on this, Jesus suffered torment that the no, no less than the rich man. Jesus suffered the torment that we deserved and he suffered it in our place. And Jesus died just as the rich man and Lazarus, but he died in our place. 
And Jesus was raised again because only Jesus has the power to cross the great chasm back from the dead into life. And that's what he did. And in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, he built a bridge that we can cross that great chasm. And so I'm speaking right now to those of you who do not yet know Jesus, or if you're not sure, or if you're, if you're waffling, it doesn't matter. The answer is always the same, and that is cross the chasm through the cross of Jesus Christ, through faith. So right now you can confess your sin and say, God, I've, I've blown it. I've sinned against you. I need you, and there's no hope for me apart from Jesus Christ. Now, you might have 57 questions, and Jesus will say, I can handle those, and we'll, we'll get to those after you believe. But it, it starts with faith. It starts with trust. It does not start with God performing miracles or answering all the questions, because there's always going to be questions. So you believe in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness and mercy, and by faith you can be like Lazarus, who was a desperate man who depended on God for everything. The man whom God knew his name. Lazarus, the one whom God helps. God knows your name. And God will help you. And I invite you to do that today, to believe in Christ. Today. Now. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you, you speak to us from beyond the grave. You speak to us of, of realities that we can't see and, or know in this life. So that we can be warned about what could await us if we don't believe. And we thank you, God, that you are merciful and compassionate. You are just and righteous. And you don't send anybody to hell that does not deserve to be there, which is everyone, because we've all sinned and fall short of your glory, including us Christians, including myself, who have sinned against you in so many ways. And yet we're forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ, and we cross that chasm. Lord, I ask you now that you will speak powerfully and affirm by your spirit the truth of what I'm saying into their hearts and convince them that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of faith where they believe and that they will take Christ by faith by praying, Lord, I have sinned against you. Forgive my sin in every way that I have failed to obey you. I receive your forgiveness. I thank you for giving me eternal life. I commit my life to you wholly now. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.